ladies and gentlemen, with a humble heart and with deep and profound joy, welcome Dr. Barbara Marks Hubbard. You know, what I need to say to all of you is just live long enough. <laughs> I think it was years ago Gloria Steinem said, this is what 60 looks like at the beginning of, after the feminist movement. So I'm going to say now this is what 80 looks like. <laughs> And it really is an unusual experience for a visionary to have been one of the early, uh, well, standing on the shoulders of many greats, but being one of the early people in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, to have lived long enough to see it emergent and to know that the very thing that I have been, you might say, intuiting, that our crisis is the birth, of a universal, co-creative, co-evolutionary humanity before there was any crisis. So I had to explain to everybody that there was a crisis coming. But this is when we thought everything was fine. You cannot imagine how important it is that we now know there is a crisis. It's a huge step forward. And if you take the image of a birth, of a biological birth, I'm a mother of five children. There is really a very good analogy here because as the fetus grows in the womb, up to a point it's really doing well. And in the seventh and eighth month, there was a story told by a, a space scientist who portray, portrayed himself as a German scientist, and he was predicting that by the eighth month there would be crowding. And that this German, he craft Eriki, he told it with a German accent. And by the ninth month, there would be serious problems. And by the tenth month, there would be triage, and the, the, the organism would be dead. The German scientist, who was an expert in the existing system, never heard of birth. And I began to understand from a whole set of stories, which I, I, I might go back to in just a moment, but I just want to make this point as I, as I describe this, that I believe that the crisis we're facing on planet Earth of limits, overpopulation, pollution, high-tech, warring of a self-centered species that took 40,000 years to develop its ego is an absolutely natural crisis. And that unless that crisis occurred with enough strength, evidently, the type of species that's sitting in this room would not be able to take dominion on this earth. Is that true? Mm -hmm. If there were not enough of a crisis of breakdown and heartbreak, and even more now, breakdown of systems that can't fun function effectively anymore, every single failure we're facing is vital. The, the, the failure of the financial system, the failure of the war system to be able to conquer, the failure of the education system to be able to educate, the failure of the prison system to, prison system to be able to correct. These are absolutely essential failures. And what is coming out of these essential failures is the birth of a species that ha has not yet fully appeared on planet Earth. And I, I'd like to say why I think this species has not fully appeared. We've had precursors, we've had great mystics, we've had great saints, we've had great visionaries, but we haven't had a great global crisis that affects absolutely every member of Earth, and I don't care what culture they are they still are affected by global warming. They're still going to be affected by the environmental collapse. They're going to be affected by all of this. And the truth is, no existing power institution is designed to handle this crisis. 
because they're all designed top down. They're all patriarchal, and they've been so for the last 5,000 years. And they built civilization. So rather than putting a total guilt trip on them, let's say, <laughs> for some reason or other, I have heard that when the written word came in, the goddess cultures went out. That the left brain took charge, and maybe from an evolutionary point of view, we had to have, or evidently we did have on this planet, the rise of civilization, of armies, of religions, of cultures. We had science, we had democracy, we had the landing on the moon, and we began to see that the crises we were generating could not be solved by the structures that had created them. Not only by the consciousness that had created them, but by the top-down dominator social structures. And we happen to be moving into the next phase of social evolution. Not only self-evolution, but social evolution. And what I'd like to do is to describe what I see as this shift from the species that has built civilization on this earth to the species that's going to co-create a new heaven and a new earth, who is going to co-create a universal humanity, both on this earth, in the solar system, in the galaxies beyond, and that we happen to be the generation born at exactly the time when this is happening. And that the people sitting in this room in Boise, Idaho, are the emerging humanity. And I, I feel enormously pri privileged to be here with my two beloved brothers. I just can't get over the evolutionary men. <laughs> we have heard a good deal about evolutionary women. But you know what? The evolutionary man who has now entered the scene with the evolutionary woman with so much passion and brilliance and love in their heart for partners to co-evolve the new family of humanity. And I just want to tell you, I mean, just two brief memories. One of my, my, beloved, my beloved friend, Andrew, how I happened to wander into one of his workshops at Esalen. I was actually there for a little rest, and it said, Andrew Harvey. So I thought, oh, well, I'll go. And, <laughs> and I sat on the floor for four solid days with this wonderful man when you could really hear what these spiritual practices are. You can really get into them. You can really get into the wisdom. And, and as I'm sitting here hearing him, because we only could hear him for an hour, to realize what is embodied in Andrew and in each of us in terms of knowing. It's huge. It hasn't yet fully spread its wings out because we're still in, well, I'll tell you where I think we are, but that what Andrew is holding and, and just able to feel the field that he presented to us, I want you to know that right there would be enough to evolve the whole planet. <laughs> Then James, my beloved James. I, I have a memory of James in Santa Barbara, California. I have a, a little, uh, two, two little rooms where I have my archives. And I, you know, I've been at this for a long time, so there's file cabinet after file cabinet after file cabinet of projects. And there's maps of the spiral of co-creation. Oh, there, yes, there's a map. And um, so we began to do something which we're calling an evolutionary communion. And toward the end, I'd like to do one with you. But basically, an evolutionary communion is to feel within yourself the core of the spiral of evolution as the divine process of creation running through atoms, molecules, cells, every element of the universe, now coming up through our own hearts, through our own essences, as the evolving aspect of God. There's the eternal, but there's the evolving. 
And that evolving aspect of God is experienced as our own passion to create. It's experienced as the creator within bursting out of us to create. And in our evolutionary communion, we would often put a actual Eucharist. And I come from a Jewish agnostic background. I have never been, a, I've failed at being an Episcopalian and I, <laughs> that's really hard to do. And I, <laughs> because the story wasn't quite right. The story of the gospel wasn't big enough. Nonetheless, uh, just uh, being very non-sequitur, James, <laughs> point after point after non-sequitur, never mind. Is, is that um, I, I, one day I, I heard the words, Barbara, take the communion every day. And I had had a Christ experience. I'd written a book of co-creation about this. So I started to do the communion every day with the idea that what we're actually doing is being part of an entire planetary body that in each of us is, is rising up the core or the divine process of creation, and we're to join together to literally consume the core of the spiral of evolution as our own co-creative partnership with the divine. And in our work, we put Christ there. You don't have to put Christ there, it's actually just spirit, it's source, it's one. But if you love any great being, you can put them there. But when you put Christ there, this is my body, this is my blood, given for you to transform into a co-creator of the world. This is the communion that we offered with James, and James began to speak in Aramaic. He took the original language, and he began to say it in the original tone. And we realized that we evolutionary, spiritually motivated, sacred activists are really recognizing the Eucharist, that we are consuming the, the essence of the body of God as our own passion to give, to create, and to be. So sitting here right in front of these two beloved evolutionary brothers is a privilege for me and then to move over to, bon, to, to Molly. I want to tell you, Molly, that this design of this event is actually superb. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like, it, it, it's, <laughs> yes. And, and I'd like to tell a little bit of why I think it's, it's so divine in just a moment, but here is what you've done. You've brought together a whole new community of people. I understand that this is an event that Boise has not done many of these events. <laughs> is that true? Yeah. Boise has not done so many events like this. And you have had two or three speakers that are holding this code of our conscious evolution. And then you had these very remarkable community creators of a new culture. These were not just heads of nonprofits or people telling you what could be done. They were the actual thing itself. The people themselves rising up for the new culture, the new self-government, the new possibility. And you had them after the two speakers, then I come, and then I hear they're coming back. Is that true? So I thought this is probably the first time as a speaker that I've had the opportunity to be within a community that's rising up, where you've brought in evolutionary uh, speakers of various kinds, and then we have the chance to hear what this community is doing, and then be on a panel with this community. I think this is actually the way it needs to be. And, and so in preparation for what's going to happen after my talk, I would like to lead up to what I think is he okay? I'd like to lead up to, to, to what I think the story is, to what I think the possibility is now for self-evolution and for social evolution, and to lead directly into the panel. 
which might want to discuss the next stage for social evolution as brought into focus by this worldview of our potential for conscious co-creation and by this kind of leader joined. And I'd like to make this into an epic event. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and I think, you know, there had to be chlorophyll had to show up, and probably nobody noticed. And there had to be, uh, you know, early self-consciousness in the midst of a Neanderthal world. Maybe nobody noticed. It's really important in times of evolutionary change to notice when actually something new is happening. And I call this real-time evolution. And I believe that today is real-time evolution. And I'd like to be aware of it. And I'd like to cultivate it. Uh, I'll give a, a, a briefly why I think this is so important. And I'll just take you back for a minute, 50 years ago, I was reminded of, of hearing particularly Andrew's talk of the culture. I was in Paris in 1948, my junior year abroad, studying political science at the Ecole des Sciences Politiques and the Sorbonne. And it was actually the time of the collapse of Western culture. We had had two world wars. The greatest cultures that were supposed to be sophisticated and knowledgeable had wrecked destruction beyond belief. The United States was moving into um, a post-atomic bomb, and we'd already dropped the atomic bomb, and our security program was going to be mutually assured destruction as a, as a, as a plan. <laughs> for 50,000 nuclear weapons, which were to be built to, to poise to 50,000 nuclear weapons. And as a student, junior year abroad in Paris in 1948, there was actually a devastation of the worldview because we had grown up in the idea of progress. We'd grown up in the idea of science and democracy and intelligence and enlightenment and the United States of America, and suddenly, even before the environmental crisis, it looked like there was no hope. We had materialistic science that was telling us we would end in the heat death of the universe. We had existentialism that, as far as I could tell, said there's no meaning except what you personally can give it. And I was 18 years old, so I had on the beret, the Gaulois, the red, the red wine, and okay, there's no meaning whatsoever to this universe except what I could give it. It was really depressing. <laughs> I mean, I could tell right off if the universe was depending for its meaning on me. It was going to be too sad. And uh, I was, but, but the thing was, I had hope. Why did I have hope? I just had an innate sense. I was an American. Uh, we'd won a war. Everything was great. We were really good. Um, no matter how bad everything looked, there was hope. But people laughed at me because what could I possibly be hopeful about? So I decided somewhere deep inside my soul I had to find out what to be hopeful about. And so I strayed from all the, the girls at Reed, Reed Hall and Bryn Mawr College, and I went to lunch all by myself. And in walked a handsome American. And there was only one seat in the entire restaurant. So he sat down next to me, and I was the type of girl who had one single question, which is, what is your purpose? And what do you think is the purpose of life? <laughs> I, I had a very slow dating life because <laughs> I needed to know, all right? If it all depended on me and it was existentialism. <laughs> so this man, this, this man, he said, well, I'm an artist. And my purpose is to seek a new image of man commensurate with our power to shape the future. And it flashed through my mind, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> and I, I actually did. And he, he sat there in this little Shea Rosalie, and he said, when a culture has a great story, it can become a great culture. 
like when the Homeric legends were written down, you could get fifth century Greece. But when they didn't believe in that story anymore, it began to disintegrate. Then we had a great story in the Gospels. A child was born and all the rest followed. A great story and all of Christendom followed. And then we had a great story in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment is in inevitable progress. But I think with the two world wars, said, said Earl, we've lost our story and we've lost our self-image. And if you look at modern art, from uh, Michelangelo's David through Monet, Manet, Pizarro, Picasso, Jackson Pollock, we had disappeared. There was no self-image. And it, we went into the period where there was no belief in any story. In fact, a whole modernism and postmodernism, post there was no story. And so I got married on the quest for a new story and a new image of man. I don't think there are too many people who get married for that reason. <laughs> but I'll tell you, actually, it was a very good reason to get married. I had five children. I lost the question for about 20 years. But when I, <laughs> I found the question again in the early 60s. And what I found, here's, here's the new story that I found. And we found, and I believe everybody who's part of this particular momentum has found, that it, basically for me, I found the story through three or four very key people and one experience. I would say the first was Teilhard de Chardin. Catholic Jesuit paleontologist, never published in his lifetime, and he discovered, you might say, God in the pattern of evolution. God in the pattern, he called it the law of complexity, consciousness. Systems become more complex, like from atom to molecule to cell. They rise in consciousness and freedom. And he foresaw a time, Omega, when there would be a massive connectivity at the higher level, and we would join heart with heart, center with center, and the noosphere, the thinking layer of Earth, all of our technologies, our cultures, would get its collective eyes. In other words, not only would planet Earth connect, but all the intelligence, the global intelligence, connecting up, but through the heart, would lead to a new humanity and an ultra-human. Ultra-human was his word. The minute I read that, I knew that that yearning inside myself as a mother of five that was considered neurotic, neurotic to want anything more, this was the period of motherhood, and I mean, only motherhood. And I realized, no, it wasn't that I was neurotic. It was that the universe was alive inside me. And that the very, how many people in this room feel a yearning passion to further express and be and create? Mm -hmm. yeah. OK. That's the universe in us pressing us to evolve. And what I realized was it's an irresistible force. They, and far from wanting to stop it, I said yes to it. Because, but I didn't know what vocation it was. Because this is where sacred activism comes in. If you just get that passion to express and create, but you don't have, a, you, know, you don't know just exactly which place to go, it's very, very difficult. And then I read Abraham Maslow. And Maslow discovered, studied well people rather than sick. Every one of them found chosen work they found intrinsically self-rewarding. That was the path to self-actualization. That means chosen work would mean that which your heart or the core of the spiral or the life force within you is moving you toward. And when you can say yes to it and find a way of expressing it that's self-rewarding and of service to at least one other person, the nature of psycho your human psychology is you begin to become joyful. Joy shows up, passion shows up, challenge shows up purpose shows up, life shows up. 
And I think you begin on, on the path of becoming a universal human. And I use the phrase universal human because I feel, as I've kept going, at that time I never met one other person like me. I was in Lakeville, Connecticut. See, there were no audiences like this. I didn't know any brothers. I, I was, uh, my husband was wonderful, but he was a Victorian household. I was wife and mother, and suddenly I got the universe inside me. <laughs> it's really difficult. And uh, <laughs> not, the, not the baby, but the universe. <laughs> and the purpose was actually to give birth as part of a planet giving birth. That every one of us, when we get turned on internally, we happen to be born into a planet which is no longer a fixed culture. So the very fact that all the systems were breaking, they weren't showing up breaking down yet, but I was breaking through anyway. <laughs> and, and so Maslow, I called him up, I invited him to lunch. He took me out to lunch and he said, never, never stop. You represent life. Never stop. And on his deathbed, he wrote me a little note. And he said, just keep going, Barbara. And that's one reason I said when I started, stay alive. <laughs> keep living through it. So there was Teilhard Maslow, there was Sri Aurobindo, who mapped the higher, he mapped evolution as it hits the human, and you go through the mental, the higher mind, the, until you get to supermind. And I think. Very few of us, maybe just in flashes, great mystics have had it. My view is that the universal human is ever more conscious. I, I go like this, I feel like I'm hearing it through my ear. It's like an inner voice, an inner knowing. And as you start saying yes to that deeper life purpose, and as you start moving out into the culture in any way that attracts you, you begin to um, incarnate, incorporate, and embody more of the consciousness that's creating the universe. Does that feel right? You, you, you become, you just, I mean, I feel like I'm right at the threshold of being conscious of the consciousness that has the genius to create an entire universe. Not only the genius, the, the universe is awesome, but then you just take Earth and you take our bodies and, and the 50 trillion cells operating here, perfectly coordinated. And I'm not noticing if, even one of them. I became absolutely awed at the creative intelligence of universe. And this would be a step towards universal human, and the new image of, of humans would be as you say yes at the time of a planetary crisis of this order, and you start moving out into the culture very much like the people who spoke here have done. You can just feel it. They've stepped out and they're creating as they step. Is that right? They're not stepping. Where are you sitting? Are you sitting in any of the people who spoke? Okay, there's one of them. Another one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are stepping out in the creation of the culture that's emergent on planet Earth. How many uh, of the CBS, ABC, NBC News is here? <laughs> no. See, that's the infantile nervous system. But you're here. We're here, and we, I have to say, are the news. Yes, by, by definition, we are the news. <laughs> and so the self-actualizing person, Bucky Fuller was another great, great leader that came in and his basic thing was we have the resources, technology, and know-how to make of the world a 100% physical success. I thought, whoa, wait till I hear that. The person has growth potential, the universe is evolving. The image of humans that would come out of this would be a co-creator. 
it would be a person imbued with the process of creation. If you see that core of the spiral, would be imbued with the core of the spiral, motivated as a person. Now let's just stop there for a minute before we get into sacred activism. You would have to evolve yourself to be able to embody the core of the spiral as your own essential self. You would actually have to evolve your species to do it. Because when you think about Homo sapiens, it has been a magnificent evolutionary labor of creating the egoic individual. It created us out of the tribal cultures, out of the animal world, and maybe evolution had to go through the period of the development of the separated human. Evidently. <laughs> and who are we to judge? And you know why we can't judge? We've never seen another planet go through this. I've often thought, when I was uh, uh, delivering my babies, if I had not ever heard of motherhood, I would think I was dying. And when I saw the baby, it would be even worse. I mean, <laughs> horrifying. We know about birth. I began, as I got into this, uh, this idea that we have the resource, technology, and know-how, this was in the 60s. Then up went the spacecraft. And whoa, I went up there with them. Because we did. And we saw Earth as one living body. That was a fantastic opening for planet Earth. That was our first baby pictures. <laughs> you can't see anything whole unless you could stand outside it. You would never be able to see your body as a cell from within it. You have to have a mirror or you have to see it in somebody else's eyes. We got the first picture of ourselves as a living whole. And this was in the same decade that Buckminster Fuller came, that Teilhard de Chardin was, was published, that, uh, that Sri Aurobindo became better known in the Western world. And when we had the Apollo program and we could see Earth from space, it gave me a, an immediate awakening that actually it was comparable to when the fish came out of the waters onto the dry land. There was no biosphere. You would have had to wear a space ship, space suit to land on planet Earth. So when I saw those astronauts up there and Edgar Mitchell, you know, and the lunar landings, you probably all can remember that. Anybody who was alive remembers that, Earth people landing on the moon we were actually coming out of the physical biosphere. We were going out through the noosphere, which is the thinking layer. It could never have happened out of just brilliant individuals. It happened out of the collective intelligence of humanity. And we got up there, and the most important part of it was the environmental movement woke up. We never knew we had an environment. Robert Mueller, as I said, I said in my movie, when he was asked, uh, he asked to do an environmental conference in the 70s and there was no word for it. And this is something to think when, when we realize the outrage we feel at the behavior toward the environment. We didn't know we had one when I was going to college. At, and when I graduated from Bryn Mawr in 1951, as I said in my, my movie, basically they said all the problems have been solved. You see, so there's, there is a bit of slack you can give humanity because we didn't know we were hitting a limit to growth. We did not realize we were polluting our environment. We did not realize that our power could destroy. We didn't realize it really until starting in the 60s as a species. And even then, it was just barely known. So, I began to see that we were being born physically as a universal species and that we were going to have to integrate ourselves as a whole system on planet Earth. And it became really obvious to me that there was a, a whole new phase of evolution that was coming in. Because here we are, perhaps for the first time on this planet, a species that was getting the signal, if you keep on growing, keep on uh, destroying your environment, 
keep on dominating other species and each other, you will destroy your biosphere, you won't breathe, and you will die. Now that is the wake-up call that humanity needs. Evidently. I, I wouldn't have chosen it, but if you'd go back onto the birth model, it's very dangerous there. And just the fact that you're having a biological birth is not a guarantee that it will work. Because it's very dangerous, the timing is very precise, and that passageway is difficult, and even the first few moments are challenging, because if the baby doesn't breathe quickly, it will die. It, its brain will be damaged. And here's what I, I'm feeling about the timing that, that we're in. I think that starting in the 60s with all of these uh, arising, and, and let's just add to that, the waking up of the women may have been the biggest thing that happened. Not only the space program, the civil rights movement, the peace movement, the environmental movement, the space movement, but what happened to the women? Let, let's just take that for a moment and then we'll go forward. When I was in the 50s with my wife and mother role, we had no identity after the age of 21. Betty Friedan wrote the book, The Feminine Mystique, and she interviewed several hundred women who'd been educated, and they were all sad. And the sadness was that there was this universe growing within us, and we had no name for it, no label for it. It wasn't even just that we needed to be professional, it was something greater. And so the women woke up, and there was this vast movement that has now moved culturally throughout the world, but particularly here in the places where we have the freedom of choice. The rise of the feminine co-creator began. And I would say the feminine co-creator is the woman in whom the creative intention of universe is activated and she is expressing herself through love of co-creating in partnership with others a world. That's the rise of the feminine co-creator. Does that feel right? And that that type of woman has not been seen before because she hasn't been called forth. And she yearns for the partnerships with men and women, which is calling forth the evolutionary men who also call us forth. And I mean, it is a huge triumph to imagine that the whole being, whole man, whole woman, joining together are founders of the new family of humanity. And that that came out of the awakening of the feminine in the 60s. That was a marvelous decade. And it had a lot of hope in it. So if you take and look at this as an organic function, and you look at that spiral of evolution and see it as progressive, which indeed it is, the formation of universe, the formation of energy, matter, life, animal life, human life, just on this little planet, not even thinking of the billions of galaxies and trillions of other planetary systems, all of whom are out there now as we speak. You know, we're trying to get used to being one Earth, but Mother Universe is out there, or in here as well. Yes, what, when I say we're being born as a universal humanity, we're just barely opening our little cosmic eyes barely seeing that we're all members of one planetary body, barely seeing that the structures of the past don't work, and barely arising up to our own unique creativity within it. This is a huge opportunity that we're facing. And if we want to do a planetary diagnosis as to exactly where we are in the planetary developmental sequence, it's hard to tell because we've never seen another planet do it. We've never seen another planet hit its limits to growth, destroy its environment and other species, and have to stop consciously or die. All right, so it, it, this is my own just intuitive diagnosis 
that we, we have been born as a planetary organism. We have seen ourselves from outer space as one body. We have learned that we have to cooperate, that, that none of our institutions are designed to do it. And with the rise of global warming particularly, we're being told that if we don't very quickly change our behavior pattern, particularly to do with carbon, but uh, other forms of misuse of energy and, and con consumption and our whole economic system, if we don't do that quickly, we will die. And that, however, if we can do it quickly, it, we would be able to have all the resources of a universal evolution. Do you see? It's a very, very fine line. And the way I make an analogy is that we are at the moment just before the baby took its first coordinated breath. It's born, but it's extremely dangerous. Because in order for planet Earth to take a coordinated set of activities which could possibly bring our resources into line with our environment and our innovations, we have to coordinate. And we have no systems to do it, except we see that the universe has the organizing genius to have created this situation. So I believe that if we are at just the crisis of our birth, that we happen to become aware of the crisis in our generation, and people in this room are aware of it. And how many of us are there on planet Earth waking up? I wonder what the percentage is. 4%? Andrew says 4. Let's say it's between 1 and 5. It's, it's, it's about, is, here's my intuition that the way nature takes these jumps is the problems are evolutionary drivers. They actually force innovation, transformation, and greater synergy, or the system goes extinct. Most species that ever lived are already extinct. Nature does not hold on to species that don't do this. The difference is we have to do it consciously. That is really the difference. So I believe that the threshold we're at, and let's say there 4% of us, is that first of all, we are shifting our identity from our egoic local selves needing to survive and dominate in order to prevail to our essential divine selves that come from the higher source and learning how to really educate our local egoic selves to be at one with us such that we can begin to step forward from that internal place of divine process of creation. And I would say all the spiritual practices and all the great traditions of the past have carried us up to this point, but they don't carry us across the threshold because they didn't have this crisis. They didn't have the challenge of environment and financial collapse on a global scale, or robotics, nanotechnology, uh, quantum computing, nuclear power, powers of gods. That's what we have. So if we're at the crisis of birth, and that the way nature does is drive toward either extinction or evolution, I would say over and beyond our personal work where we have a, a certain head start, the most important thing is social synergy. How to coordinate, co-create, and synergize that which is already emergent. It's one thing to, of all the problems we have to fix which gets so daunting. But if you start connecting everything which is already emergent and bringing more into it, 
what happens is you get a sense of the dynamic force of evolution going with you rather than against you. And it, it, you feel that? It's a huge sense of hope. So the evolution of the person from egoic to the essence of the divine called forward by the process of creation to express your creative action in a new kind of culture that calls for synergy and cooperation as its new norm. And I want to go back just a moment on, on the evolution of the person and then imagine the social synergy and see if today in our event with our colleagues that there might be what wants to be born here is greater social synergy. And I just want to give a few more thoughts on the evolution of the person. What, what time do I finish? No, it's, I, I've lost track of my time. It's 2.30? Well, let me just give these few points about the person as it leads into the social. What I'm noticing is the rise, it's my favorite idea, of the rise of an energy as great as sexuality. And I call it supra-sexuality. And here's what it is. Nature has given us self-preservation and self-reproduction as major drives of the human species. We've hit over six and a half billion people. We can't double again. In the woman especially, there's a hormonal signal that's shifting the drive to procreate up into the drive to co-create. That our sexuality is expanding and including our creativity. And we're living longer and longer lives, 50, 60, 70, 80. And look at me. I'm, I don't even feel like I'm dying. It's <laughs> <laughs> Is it possible that the way we're going to solve the crisis is by suprasexual co-creativity? Now, there is a really good thought, if you, if you sink into it a little bit. Nature put joy into sexuality to get us. We did well. We have be fruitful and multiply, and we have. Here's my experience. As I began to find that inner creativity, and I found it was the universe, but it's in unique form for every person. As it, as it comes out as your drive to create, you've got to find where to put it. It's very much like a teenager going through puberty. If you, if you don't find where to give that gift, you become frustrated. And Maslow pointed this out, you become sick. You be probably become violent, you become abusive, you become addicted. But when you find the place to express the creativity, it, it almost forces you to find partners. I think that's how this week happened. Molly, you were able to reach out. You reached out to other people here, you reached out to James, you reached out to me and Andrew, and we all joined you by your drive to create. And was it a passion with you? Did, did anybody pay you a lot to, to get this done? <laughs> That's it. There you go. So suprasexual drive is rising up in the feminine and in the masculine as well. Longevity is just hitting its stride. We're hitting, my other favorite word, of the, of the women who are postmenopausal, we're hitting regenopause. Now, that's a new concept. Regenopause is, you know, the body has been producing the eggs and you're supposed to reproduce the species. And then in the old days, you had more or less finished and you felt you were aging and dying. But instead, a 50-year-old woman today, is, I look at them, they're like a girl. Because actually they're beginning. And instead of... Yes, we have no more eggs. We are the egg. <laughs> because the, 
the, the fruit of what the passion to express and create that feminine co-creator is, is, is relatively undeveloped. Very few of us have had the chance to get anywhere near it, and that's one reason you have to live a long time. And I'm entering what I'm calling Regenopause II. <laughs> Regenopause one is 50 and over. Regenopause two, I'm saying, is 80 and beyond. <laughs> I've just claimed the, the, uh, the, the uh, phase. And there are many more of us. All right, so let's assume that nature has placed this creative drive in us that is barely, barely actualized in most people. But that doesn't mean it's not there. And in order to create a society in which that drive to create can join is what I'm calling a society of social synergy. And I'd like to just describe what I think that is and talk it over at greater length when, when, when people would like to do it. I, the, the experience, I had an experience of designing conferences called SynCons for Synergistic Convergence. I, I did 25 of them. And I just want to make an evolutionary comment that evolutionary theory points out that nature is a hierarchy of synergies. That means that nature creates more complex whole systems. And the more complex and whole the system can become, the more capable it is of using energy, of surviving, and prevailing. So instead of it being survival of the fittest, it's actually survival of what fits best. It's survival of where synergy occurs, and out of synergy you get more energy and greater than the sum of its parts. And we are an example uh, in our bodies, and the ecology is an example. Our society is an example of dissynergy right now. Every single institution, nation state, organized religion, academic institutions, um, global corporations, the United Nations, are designed for separation. So that the people in them, even if they want to and are yearning to, structurally, are almost inhibited from co-creation and cooperation at any scale. So in, in the uh, 70s, we designed the way we did it. And we're now developing it in many different groups. But I'll just say simply what it was. Instead of being squares, you design holes. And we actually built wheels. Here's environment. Here's health. Here's education. Here's economics. You see that wheel up there? It's 12 around 1. And somebody gave me this necklace. The vector equilibrium geometric um, cosmic geometry, Bucky Fuller's model, is that 12 connects makes a stable form. So we're suggesting a 12 around 1 model of social synergy. And you take the basic functions of society. And many of you who spoke are in different functions. There's the function of health. There's the function of governance. There's the function of economics. There's the function of spirituality from the point of view of what wants to evolve in that function. And what we did, basically, is we asked each group to, and we didn't do it very elegantly, but now we know how to form small groups. But their basic questions are, what do you want to create? What's your vision? What do you need in order to create it? And what gifts do you want to give freely to others? And so we invited very uh, people who totally disagreed with each other at the time. You know, black power leaders, environmentalists, welfare mothers, ambassadors, uh, Nobel Prize winning physicists. Ed Mitchell was at one of them. Gene Houston. We, we, we put just a total mix. But by function and by desire to create. And then we actually took down walls between sectors. And people looked for common goals and matched needs with resources. And then they went back to their, their um, sectors. And then we would have sessions called vocational dating. <laughs> and vocational dating, if you think of suprasex, is somebody has a need that you have a resource for. You know what? You want to meet that person. And it, then we had TV cameras there to go in and take the pictures of people creating. 
and we made it into the news. Every evening, we had the New World's Evening News, you know, in the Mideast, that was even in the 70s, in the Mideast, they were killing each other. Meanwhile, at Southern Illinois University, hippie so-and-so talking with head of the Chamber of Commerce said so-and-so, and, -so. and when, that, when we became the news as creators, people wanted to see themselves over and over again. Because what you communicate, what, what gets communicated is where you feel you're growing. And so many of the things that get attention are what's oppositional. And so at the SINCONS, when we pulled down all the walls, we had at the center of the hub there is where I think spirit comes through. And social synergy actually is a social love affair because people get to find where they can match needs and resources. There's more energy through synergy than through the sum of the parts in opposition. That is just really not an idealistic statement. It's a true statement. And when you add to it, the news of ourselves as to what we're creating. It was phenomenal. I mean, we actually had key space scientists there because of my love of the space program. And, some of, and one of the uh, heads of our committee was General Joseph Blameyer, who came from Boise, Idaho. And I'm sure he's not with us anymore, but he was head of the manned orbiting laboratory programs. And he said, if John F. Kennedy had said, put a man on the moon and bring him back sometime, nothing would have happened. And I'm going to make the suggestion that we have to say, at some point, humanity has to have a due date where the connectivity of all of this shows up as the greatest feat of human creativity, potentiality, and compassion the world has ever seen. And I think we should initiate it in Boise. <laughs> On behalf of General Joseph Blameyer and Molly. So the, when the, the social synergy is when the separate parts of a social body come together in an environment that is not hierarchical, where people enter in by their passion to create, where it goes beyond stereotypes and you don't come in representing an organization, even though you may be of an organization, you come in with as much as possible your personal vision to create. And what you need and what the resources are that you're yearning to give. People want to give when they can sing or they can heal. You know, we're yearning to give our gifts. The greatest gift I've ever been given is the gift of giving my gift. Isn't that true? When you get, when anybody needs what I, I mean, when I was told my vocation turned out to be go tell the story of the birth of humanity as a universal species, who do you suppose wanted that? <laughs> And I used to be at cocktail parties in Lakeville, Connecticut, and people would say in the early days, how are you, Barbara? Well, I'd say 14 billion years ago, and blah, 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 blah. And <laughs> finally, they said, we don't want to know how you are, by the way. <laughs> We're not interested in how you are. And you see, I had to find even one or two people who cared. <laughs> about this, this particular gift of telling this story. So, and just by the way, just what happens when you have your own internal yearning to express, and you can feel it at SINCONS, you feel it here, is as you're expressing it, you get rewarded in the expression of it. And you get given a gift by giving the gift. That really is the big secret. It's not what do I want to get, it's really what do I want to give, and I really need somebody who wants it. <laughs> because if they don't want what I have to give, I can't grow. 
it's really then becomes a frustration. And I wouldn't be at all surprised after going to that amazing event with Sustainable Futures, is that a lot of crime, a lot of addiction has to do with not being able to give your gift early on. So, so my suggestion is that because this, uh, uh, that we learn how to do social synergy at small enough scales, at community levels, where it's doable because the people are already here and really all it takes is one person doing it in uh, Ashland in the library once a month. And he's using a 12 around one model. And you don't have to build wheels like we did. You just have to invite people who are interested in various sectors. But notice that they're all part of a whole. See, that's a really big difference. That here's environment over here. Here's health over here. You see, they can, none of them will ever fulfill themselves completely unless the connections among the parts and the core of the spiral coming through people by whatever word they want to call it, you're actually participating in divine co-creation. You don't need to say that to everyone. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the, <laughs> the ones who know it get, get a double whammy <laughs> out of it because they feel the God force within them. And look at me. I actually, you know, <laughs> Somebody said to me, I think, Bob, I haven't seen him in 15 years. He drove nine, uh, nine hours to get here from Montana. And he said, Barbara, what keeps you going? Why are you still excited about all this? And I thought, why am I? <laughs> what, I mean, getting up in the morning is that core of the spiral. And actually, when, it, when you say yes to it, you start tapping into the infinite forces of creation. And I really believe they are infinitely creative. And so let, let's take the idea of social, social self-evolution, moving itself into social evolution, and now just add the idea of identifying what's already working in a community. Not only what, where are the problems, but where are, like, just exactly the people we saw as, a, as magnificent examples, it's not that they're not facing terrible problems, but they're doing something that works. And by amplifying and connecting what's working, you begin to select for more of that. And evolution selects for what works, not for what doesn't work. <laughs> so if we can put together an event, based on exactly the type of people who are in this room and more, where people are sharing their visions, their goals, their needs, and their resources, and looking for common goals and matching needs and resources, and just having a little video camera pick up the places where the creativity, and invite uh, local elected officials to be present. How many local elected officials are here? Is there one? We, but they're not here, and the media is not here. Okay, that. Who's here? Public access television. Okay, you see, this is an uprising of the next culture of humanity. That's what's here. <laughs> and if you've seen that nature has been up to this for 14 billion years, you know you got something on your side. <laughs> In other words, it's a big trend. <laughs> so I think I'd, I'd better stop now, but let's see. What did I want to say to stop? Um, I'd like to just make a, a final statement of what's happening to me as I'm noticing that the crisis is more and more apparent. So all the things that we, we were saying as visionaries is actually happening. I feel like there's such a thing as crossing through the veil of the present and the future and literally moving to the other side of the crisis. And I can feel it in myself that, that, that 
um, it's not a premonition of what's coming, it's a knowingness. And allowing yourself to step to the other side of this particular crisis, uh, what it does is it starts connecting you up to the whole system. And I, I feel like all the, uh, like the core of the spiral will be able to go through us when we step to the other side and then we're also within it coming forward. But by being here to welcome ourselves. Is there anybody that'd like to be part of a welcoming committee for ourselves? Yes? All right. <laughs> so I'd like to conclude with the idea of of actually allowing ourselves to go on the other side. To know that nature for billions and billions of years has been creating greater and greater whole systems with greater and greater intelligence. And that we are consciously doing that now. And we can imagine, as James was saying, in the imaginal realm, the quality of the culture that emerges from this birth of synergistic co-creative humanity is already pulling us forward. We're not making this up out of never, it's inherent in the design of creation. It's not predetermined, but I believe it's pre-patterned. And the closer you get to it, like I can feel it right now as I'm backing up into the other side, it's not life after death, but life after this phase of life. And there is no reason for evolution to stop here. So with that thought, let's take a deep breath and just for a moment be part of our own welcoming committee. <laughs> and we feel ourselves simultaneously on the other side, breathing deep into the process of creation that brought us here and holding this in our imaginal realm so that it becomes ever more tangible, ever more real to us. And then we cross back over into being members of a body that's still moving toward it, but we'll never forget we're already there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all. Dr. Barbara.